0: Uh, this sermon, you know, I'm going on a series here, doing a series through the Old Testament and Bible stories and the Ten Commandments, <clears throat> but I want to take a break because I want to talk about baptism. As I started researching, putting together my sermon, I realized, you know what? I'm going to grab the baptism thought from the Great Commission. I'm just going to talk about the Great Commission and what's entailed in that. So this is a little broader than just baptism. Um, I think that... Uh, I think it'll be really relevant to us. If you happen to have your Bibles, you'll want to open them to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be in 19 and 20. Maybe you have this memorized, maybe not. If you have the Version Bible app, uh, there's a Bible app event for this, and you can open that up and click the little menu and look for an event near you, and that should come up. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. <coughs> you know, it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny the emphasis that people put on last words, you know, the last words that someone said. When uh, co-founder and CEO of Apple Computer, um, when he died, the media was like, what were his last words? What were Steve Jobs' last words? And then they found him and they told to us to anyone remember what they reported? What were his last words? And yeah, just me, oh, wow. I don't know what that means. I know that I've been there frequently when someone has died and I know sometimes they're not really thinking, oh, wow, or anything else because, you know, their, their body is not in a condition to perceive what's happening to them. But everyone was interested in, oh, what did Steve mean by that? Steve Jobs' last words. And I find it really interesting, not because I'm interested in Steve's last words, but I find it interesting that people are interested. Does that make sense to you? And it's not universal. We're not interested in everybody's last words, just certain people. For example, people who died in the same decade as Steve Jobs died would include Carrie Fisher. Anyone know what Carrie Fisher's last words were? Beam me up to the TARDIS, Scotty. Wow, Josiah insulted like three groups of nerds right there, right? No, we don't even know what her last words are because we weren't really interested in what her last words would be. And, and, and another uh, person, Tom Petty. I really like Tom Petty's music, but I never read anyone say, here were his last words. They're just not interested in Carrie or in Tom. However, Stephen Hawking, you know who that is? He's a physicist that had Lou Gehrig's disease, in the wheelchair, spoke with an electronic voice. There are websites that recount his last words, not just those spoken in public by his little machine, but even the last words that he wrote in the last book that he wrote, What Did Stephen Hawking Say? I find it interesting that we're interested in Steve Jobs and Stephen Hawking. I like to think it's because their first name is the same as mine, but I don't think that's it. I think part of the reason we're interested in them and not so much Tom Petty is because of the respect we have for them. Maybe it's a matter of respect. I mean, you have to respect Steve Jobs, the way he saw potential and implemented it and had others implement it. Just amazing how he changed the world. Yeah, respect. Even if you're not an iPhone person, you've got to respect him. And Stephen Hawking, who doesn't respect... Stephen Hawking, I respect him just for the raw courage of being that debilitated with Lou Gehrig's disease and still having someone dress you in a suit every morning and haul you out in your electric wheelchair and talk to people through your electronic voice. For years, he did that and, and he talked about things that I don't even begin to understand. Most of us don't. You got to respect him. So yeah, I, I think when we respect someone, we kind of want to know what were their last words? What were Jesus' last words? Well, you know, his last words on the cross were, it is finished. I believe the Greek word is telestai. It is finished. But what about after that, after he was raised from the dead? When he was talking to his disciples those last few times, before he ascended into heaven, what did he find important to say to them? Well, we don't have to just wonder about that because the Holy Spirit of God breathed the words of Scripture. Scripture. In numerous places that recount various last words that Jesus shared. You can find it in Acts chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You can find it in Luke 24. You can find it in John 21. And this morning, we're going to look at some of his last words spoken in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. So follow along in your Bibles as we read just those two verses. Jesus is speaking And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We call that the great commission, that Jesus commissioned us to do something. These are some of his last words. And I kind of want to take that apart today and look at what he was telling us. I want to talk today about what Jesus expects us to do. And the very first action word that is filled with expectation, at least in the English, is the word go. Therefore, go and make disciples. Should I stay or should I go now? (laughs) You should go, especially after singing that, Pastor Steve. Right? Yeah, yeah. Should you go? should you say? Think of the old hymns that speak of this. Maybe you're familiar with, to the regions beyond, I must go, I must go, where the story has never been told. Another one is, there's a song comes ringing or the restless waves, send the light, send the light. Or another one that says, anywhere with Jesus, I would safely go. Go. Go to the places that have no gospel access. And the reason you're going, let me say this, the reason you're going is not to change them socioeconomically, politically, not to change their language, not to change their custom or their culture. The reason you're going is just to share what you found. You have found forgiveness from sin. Share it. You have found release from shame. Share it. That's what we're doing. Now, I have to say this because I believe it with all my heart. Not all of us are called to go but every Christian is called to own this commission. <laughs> and those who cannot go, send the ones who can. The context, I think, of this is very important when we read it in verse 19. Take a look at it again. It says, therefore, go and make disciples, look at those next three words, of all nations. That would be hard for these people to do who were listening to Jesus at this moment if they just stayed in Judea. It'd be hard for me to do if I just stayed in Pennsylvania. And this is why we send international workers to go into places where we are not, where the gospel is not, so they can fulfill this great commission of Jesus. That is why I have gone to Russia, gone to Turkey, gone to Japan, gone to other places to encourage and talk to the international workers who are there because what they're doing is a priority with me and a priority with our movement, who we are as a denomination. Either I go, or if I don't go, I pray for and otherwise support those who do go. And I will say this, going overseas and visiting, the first time it happened was in Ecuador, I received the message in stereo, in quadra, whatever phone that is, in every way you can imagine, living color. Steve Shields, you are not called to go. <laughs> I wasn't. But I was called to own this commission. I was called to be part of what God is doing. Because in a sense, all of us are on mission. And God wants all of us to be sharing this good news wherever we go, whatever we do, wherever we are. One author says it this way. God's people are to engage in evangelism and discipleship wherever they are. Whether they are missionaries, pastors, engineers, pilots, our janitors this is the heart of the great commission therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything i have commanded you and surely i am with you always to the very end of the age think about the second phrase in that that phrase make disciples therefore go share what you found make disciples Oh, and, and be a disciple too, right? Being a disciple means being a follower. Uh, there's still some brick and mortar bookstores around, right? Like isn't there one down at State College near Sam's Club? And I think there's one in Altoona up, uh, up on the hillside there, wherever that is, right? When you, when you go into that the next time, take a look and see how many, how many books are about leadership. There's probably like a whole section on leadership. Here's how to lead. And then go to the clerk and say, where are your books on being a follower? (laughs) There aren't any. There aren't any. Because being a follower is not glamorous. In fact, in recent years, we've invented some pretty ugly words for followers. Here's one of them. Sheeple. Ah, look at those sheeple and what they believe. Now, if you're twisting your head and thinking, what? You're not on social media. That's a blessing for you. Right? Ew, who wants to be a sheeple? I am. I am. I follow Jesus unquestionably and unapologetically. He calls himself the good shepherd and he calls me a sheep and I follow because that is what it means to be a disciple. You're a follower. In fact, the first part of verse 20, you see he says, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Disciples follow instructions. They obey. Being a disciple means obeying Christ's commands. I'm going to throw some of them up on the screen. Let's read them. Obeying Christ's commands, the, that is loving the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Striving to love your neighbor as you love yourself and letting your light shine before others so that the others will see that and glorify God. And, having a heart of forgiveness and letting go of the bitterness that wants to take root in my heart and ensuring that my yes is yes and my no is no and loving my enemies and praying for those who treat me poorly. And that includes, by the way, your enemies in who, who have proclaimed themselves enemies in the Taliban. That includes them I'm praying for their transition, their salvation by grace through faith that they would find what you have found. Loving your enemies and praying for those who treat you poorly. Investing for the future. Laying up your treasures not just on earth but on he- in heaven. And refraining from condemning others. Leaving that judgment with God. And trusting, I'm sorry, and treating others as you yourself would like to be treated. Working to bear good fruit, fruit that will last. These are Jesus' instructions, most of them coming right from the Sermon on the Mount, which is here's how to be a follower. Here's how to be my disciple. And discipleship is for everyone, all of us who follow Jesus. I want to take a rabbit trail for a minute. And Vance Havner, one of the greatest preachers of the last century, said, Sometimes a pastor needs to go on a rabbit trail because a lot of us live on rabbit trails. (laughs) So that's where I'm going for just a minute. Did you notice this list? That none of that's political. Did you notice that? And I have to say this because many believers have thoroughly politicized Christian faith to the point that some people will not listen to me when I want to tell them how to make their peace with God because they think that I am something I am not. And they don't like that. None of this is political. Some people have become deceived, thinking that if you don't align politically with this, then you cannot be a Christian. That, my friends, and I don't usually speak if you're visiting, I never talk about politics. I am apolitical as best I can be from the pulpit. And second, um, I don't usually use this kind of language. Some people feel like that you cannot be a Christian. They've been deceived into thinking that you cannot be a Christian unless you align this way political, and that, my friend, is a lie from the pit of hell. It is. People in both political camps, I'm not talking to Democrats or Republicans, I'm talking to everyone. We have done this. And we ourselves suffer spiritually from it. And so does a world that desperately needs Christ. Jesus never politicized his message. People tried to lure Jesus into political debate. You have friends that do that with you? You know? <laughs> they did it with Jesus in Matthew. And by the way, I love this part I'm gonna tell you about Jesus. I love Jesus because he died for my sins. That's enough. But I also love what I'm reading about Jesus, he was so good at answering people. And when I'm watching, I'm like, whoa, that is like watching Ben Roethlisberger throw a really long one, you know? But better. Listen to this. They're trying to lure Jesus into a political debate in Matthew 22, 17. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Jesus refused to engage in their political rhetoric. And if anyone should have, he should have done it. Because politically, they were in a worse place than we have ever been. But he shouldn't have. And he didn't. His response was, show me the coin that's used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And then he asked him, whose image is on this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Well, so give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what is God. Yeah, so being a, being a follower of Jesus, it's not really tightly connected to any political viewpoint. It means obeying what he has commanded. This list plus on the screen before you. In, in short, discipleship means two things. Number one, helping people find the forgiveness that you have found. And number two, teaching them to follow the things that Jesus said, his teaching. That's what we're called to do. As part of his last words, so Jesus expects us first to go. Second, he expects us to make disciples, and third, he expects us to baptize people and be baptized. Of course, have you been baptized? I was baptized when I was a senior in high school in a swimming pool in Clarion County. Yeah, I can remember that. I, I, I know. I know. I didn't really understand it because I was a senior. In high school. And I'm just going to say this. Every woman here knows this is true. And most of the men might not know it's true unless they're over 30. The male brain really doesn't mature until it's in its late 20s. Right? Yeah. And, and mine was what? 18 years old, a senior in high school. So I really didn't have a crisp idea of what, was, what I was doing there. I mean, they explained it to me and everything. And I'm glad I did it. I think it was good that I did it. It was right that I did it at that time. Because it was a very meaningful experience in my life. But I didn't really understand it. Could you explain baptism to someone? Like if someone says, so explain baptism to me. It is an important concept. It's an important thing. Because here Jesus is talking about it in his final communication. You you notice in this final communication, Jesus doesn't say anything about giving. He doesn't talk about marriage. He doesn't talk about relationships. He doesn't talk about communion. He doesn't talk about praying. He doesn't talk about fasting. And among these people that Jesus is talking to here (laughs) in this passage... Our four guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke is there, Peter is there. These are four guys that are going to write scripture after he ascends to the Father. And Jesus doesn't talk to them about how important their job is. He, he doesn't say to Matthew, hey, Matthew, you're going to be writing kind of a biography of me and the things that happened here. Don't forget the Beatitudes, because I think that was some of my best work. He doesn't bother saying that. He doesn't say to Mark, Mark, you're going to be writing a very short, concise book of what happened here. And in that, you're going to be tempted to leave some things out. But it's important that you don't just use the Hebrew and Aramaic terms. Take time to define those as you're writing because Gentiles won't know what you mean and it's important to them. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say to John, hey, John, when you get to the part where you're writing about supper, remember the supper right before I went to the cross, we were all eating Passover together. And you remember that prayer I gave, that high priestly prayer I gave Make sure you write that as word for word as you possibly can because it's really important the coming generations know that I prayed for them. Don't forget to do that, John. He doesn't say to Peter, Peter, you're not the best writer here, so you're going to have to write two books. You know, He doesn't do any of that. Of all the things that Jesus tells them, and here's what he tells them. He says, go, make, baptize. That's it. At least in the Matthew account. In the Matthew account, go tell the world make disciples, baptize them. So baptism, it's pretty important. What's it all about? I just want to tell you three things about baptism. Number one, baptism indicates cleansing. It symbolizes cleansing. It reminds us of cleansing. It reminds us of the cleansing that Jesus does when you turn your heart to him. If you have your Bibles, flip over to 1 John 1.9. I'm guessing half of you have it memorized. 1 John 1.9 is a great verse. We'll read it in just a minute. Have you ever done something that afterward you felt so guilty and so shameful you felt like you should go take a shower? I mean, people have told me that. When people are with me, they'll say, you know, Pastor, I did this thing. I felt so awful. I felt so awful about it. I had to go take a shower. I just felt dirty. And I will say to you that there have been times that I've felt that feeling. It's kind of universal. Psychologists love to talk about it, right? <laughs> Shakespeare. And buddy, I want to tell you right now, I know we have an English teacher or two here. I wish that today's high school English teachers would cram Shakespeare down the throats of students just like my teacher did to me. Because he was so sharp. So sharp. If you, you know, if, if ever, you know, like a Penn State or a Clarion University or whatever, they're going to do Any Shakespeare play, go watch it. You don't even have to understand it because when you're watching it live, you'll get the point all the way through. It's amazing how he communicated. He has this one scene where a murderess, whose name is Lady Macbeth, can't sleep. Well, she can sleep. But as she sleeps, she gets up and she sleepwalks and talks in her sleep because she feels this immense guilt about having killed the old man, right? Right? And listen to what she says as she's walking and talking in her sleep. Out, damned spot. She's talking about the spot of blood, trying to clean it up. Out, damned spot. Out, I say. Who would have thought the old man had so much blood in him? Now listen, she's not having a laundry problem. (laughs) She's not dreaming of cleaning up that blood only. She is dreaming of the impossibility of washing away your own guilt. And she just can't do it. Most people feel dirty, unclean when they do something wrong. How do you clean that up? <laughs> Did you open your Bible to first John 1 9? Jesus cleans it up. Listen to what he says. John says, if we confess our sins, he, that is Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So you're clean. You're clean. Baptism with water is a natural symbol of what Jesus does supernaturally when we receive him. And it's important. It's so important. Jesus reminds us of it in some of his last words. He reminds us of baptism because baptism indicates transformation, change, like a caterpillar being transformed into a butterfly, or for some of us into a moth. (laughs) In any case, into something beautiful. Turn to Romans 6 4. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. The Bible says that turning your heart to Christ is like becoming a whole new creation. The old is dead and the new is alive. Jesus compares it to being born all over again, a whole new life. And baptism reflects that reality. Romans 6, verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Okay, let me talk to you. Some of you know this. It's okay. Hang in there. Let me talk to you about how we baptize people at Kerman Soil Alliance. We have this pool up here that we install, and usually Brian or one of the trustees fills it with water. It's maybe about this deep. I was gonna take it home and put it on my patio this summer when it was really hot, but Laurel wouldn't let me. Just kidding, I wouldn't do that, just kidding. So we have this nice pool that we put up here, we fill it with water, and then we get into that pool, and I, I hold the person who's being baptized. They, they're facing that direction, And and I hold them, so they're looking that way, and I lean them back like this, right? And I lean them down into the water, under the water, is where I put them. It's kind of like laying a child down in bed to rest, or it's a little crass, but it's kind of like what the funeral director would do, right? To lay you down in your coffin, right? You're being buried with Christ in baptism. And I don't hold you under there long, Right? And, and then I pull you up out like this and you always pop. People always, oh, they're like, because they're floating and they really want to get up out of that water already. And so I to you and you plant your feet firmly on the floor because you're a new person, washed and transformed by Christ. That doesn't happen when you're baptized. That happens when you receive Christ as your savior. But baptism reminds you and anybody else, I have been transformed. I mean, listen to John six, or Romans 6, 4 again. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Baptism reminds us we're buried with him. The old Steve is dead and gone. And we've been raised to life in Christ with feet standing firmly on a rock. No wonder, no wonder Jesus mentioned that in some of his last words. Baptism indicates indicates cleansing. It indicates transformation, and it indicates commitment, kind of like marriage. You're standing before God and man when you get married and making a commitment, and when you get baptized, you're standing before God and the people who are present, indicating you've made a commitment. And a pastor who's baptizing you, or anyone who's baptizing you, will probably ask you some questions to say out loud, the answers to to everyone who's there. We'll have a microphone here, it will be a cordless mic, because if you grab the other one, we may all go meet Jesus more quickly than we intend, right? So I have a mic there, you'll be able to speak, and a and pastor will say something like this, are you trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? The baptism candidate would say, I am. Are you devoted to Jesus, pledging to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself? I am. Is it your desire to follow Christ in baptism? For crying out loud, I'm about bursting wanting to do this, Pastor. Would you do it? Right? Yes, it is. That's a pretty radical thing to be baptized, especially if you're being immersed in front of a whole bunch of people on a Sunday morning, right? Does Jesus really want you to be that radical? He does want you to be radical because he had a radical love for you. And he expects a radical commitment from his followers. And we as Americans, wow, sometimes we really fail in this. I read a meme on Facebook this week. You know what I've just realized when I was writing this sermon? Pastors used to say this. I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said, and it's changed. Now we're all saying, I saw a meme on Facebook the other day that said, right? Right? Ah, uh, pastors, they get their illustrations in funny places. But I saw a meme on Facebook that hit me right between the eyes. That ever happen to you? I'm not gonna put the whole thing up here because I don't want any of you to get hurt when it hits you. It hit me hard. I'll just put the first part up. It said this. Church in Afghanistan, we will gather and likely Die. The bottom half of it said church in America. We will gather. And then it said things like when there's not a sunny day. When we don't have a trip to take. When we don't need to meet someone for lunch. When donuts aren't on sale at Dunkin'. Get that off the screen. (laughs) It hit me right between the eyes. Baptism is a commitment. It's saying you have a commitment. And it is a pleasure, it is a pleasure for us to live out a radical commitment to Christ. You know, it says of the early church, they they considered themselves blessed to be able to be persecuted as followers of the way. It is a pleasure to be committed to Christ. The early church, for them doing it, it meant identifying yourself with a man who had been killed as a criminal just a few weeks earlier. You really want to be identified with him? You know what the government thinks of him. It was turning your back on religious leadership, religious leadership that all your life, you've been told they hold the keys to the kingdom. You're turning your back on them. For the only church, it was letting go of all your social networking, all your social support, and I'm not talking about the social network like the electronic kind, just the everyday kind that you've had ever since you were a kid. All the people you relied on and all the people that you, that you felt like were your connections, you are letting go of a lot of those. He was making a powerful statement that says, I get it. I get it. I am a committed follower of Jesus. No wonder Jesus put these in as some of his last words for us. By the way, we're having a baptism service on September 26th, if you can wait that long. (laughs) If you would like to be baptized, I'd like you to speak to me because I want to make sure you understand it and uh, that you can receive the full blessing that God might have for you there. You know, Jesus said a lot of things before going to the cross. Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Beautiful thing to say. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come for you. What a wonderful thing to say. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very end of the earth. Cool thing to say just before you Ascend of the Father. The Spirit of God moved Matthew to record the words we read this morning. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the words, to the very end of the earth. <laughs> How are you doing with those words? Are you spreading the message of Christ? Going however that looks to you? Are you being discipled? And are you discipling others, participating in that aspect of the Great Commission? Are you committed to him with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength? I want to pray that each of us would be as we conclude our time before we sing this morning. So as we pray, if you're comfortable doing so, would you please stand? And let's bow our hearts together. Lord Jesus, we see what you expect of us. That you expect that we would be people who share what we have found. Why would we hoard it? Forgiveness of sin, release from shame, bondage broken, liberty in Christ. We know you expect us to go. And you expect us to be discipled, to grow in our faith, and to learn what you have us to say and the way you have us to live and to share that, to make disciples. And you expect us to demonstrate our commitment to you, not just through baptism, but surely through baptism. But may the way we live indicate cleansing, transformation, and commitment. As we consider those things, we would pray, Holy Spirit, that you would so come upon us that these last words would have great meaning to us, and that we would live them by your power, the power of your spirit. We do not do this out of a sense of obligation or we, we don't do it because you've twisted our arm. <laughs> we do it because you love like a hurricane with great force and might. And we have been swept away in that love so that we will follow your commission by the power of your spirit. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.